Hello, and welcome to the ninth podcast of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. And now, for Stories of the Week ending November 7th, 2014. Hello, everyone. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back. So, uh, it's been a great week. What's going on? Oh, look. Hey, what's up, Vic? Vic's in the house. What's going on, buddies? He didn't even shut the door. He's not coming in half the episode. Hey, it's okay, though. He brought food tonight. He brought food. Popcorn and water. I want to get comfortable. (laughs) I don't know, man. There's a throw pillow over there. Yeah, man. Whatever. So what's up, guys? Nothing much. Um, It's been a a hectic week so far. We've had a lot going on here in, uh, in the world of information security. Um, it's it's great to get back on the mic though. I'm glad we don't have any conferences this week. Oh, it it feels like a relief actually, even though going to them are fun. What a relief it is, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, let's see. We want to start out with a very cool story. We kind of covered some of it last week. Um, let's get into it. Hilton Honors, right? Who here? I do. I do. Right? Everyone does. Yeah, I love I do Hilton. myself, right? I used uh, my Hilton Honors Rewards points like two months ago. So you may want to check into it, and this is why. Um, a number of readers, uh, and again, this was taken from a, a security blog, a number of readers have complained recently about having their Hilton Honors loyalty accounts emptied by cyber crooks. This type of fraud often catches consumers off guard, but the truth is what the recent spikes in fraud against Hilton Honors members is part of a larger trend that's been worsening for years. So Hilton Honors is a loyalty reward, um, basically uh, rewarding members that stay at Hilton um, with points, right? The points accumulate, and you can use uh, the points for free nights, purchasing things like free nights, flights. Uh, I think you can even use them for flights and stuff like that. So, are you saying somebody stole my points, Matt? Yep. So, um, oh. they got into the accounts, um, and this was for let's see, let me give you all right, Benden Brothers, which is a frequent traveler from St. John's and Newfoundland 
or Newfoundland, Canada, discovered a few days ago that his Hilton Honors account had been relieved of more than a quarter million points. Rewards that he accumulated using a credit card associated with the account. Brothers said the fraudsters were brazen in their theft, using the account to redeem half what half dozen hotel stays in the last week of September, booking rooms all along the east coast of the United States from Atlanta, Georgia to Charlotte, North Carolina, all the way up to Stanford, Connecticut. The thieves reserved rooms at more affordable Hilton properties, probably to make more points, you know, stretch further, the brother said. When they exhausted his points, they used the corporate credit card that was associated with the account to for- purchase additional points. Um, so, and I quote, they got into the account, and of course, the first thing they did was change my primary and secondary email accounts so that neither me nor my travel agent were well, getting no. any notifications about the travel bookings. Um, and Brothers is the co-founder of Verifin, which is a Canadian software security firm that focuses on anti-money laundering mm. and fraud detection. <laughs> Wait a minute, Matt. Isn't this something similar to what happened to you recently? Yes. It's that's actually crazy, isn't it? Yeah, this is the MO now. You think it's the same guys? I don't know. How come nobody ever hacks into the system and then like gives us all this know, extra? Right? Is there any Peter Pan <laughs> hackers out there? I don't think we so. We need that, man. I don't think we have that. Um <laughs> I think now Robin Hood uh, hackers. It, <laughs> I'm sorry. Robin Hood hackers, right? <laughs> Steal from the rich and give to the poor. Um, tax the rich. That's what they would say. Um, to be honest with you, I think that that is far gone. So if we were looking at late '90s, you know, I think that that probably would happen. But right now, with the organized crime rings using electronic means to get money, to get these points, to perform credit card fraud. I think now they're seeing it more as an enterprise-level hacking, right, to where it's a business model. So this is like hacking as a service, essentially, (laughs) um, which is crazy. So I don't think we're going to reap any of the benefits of that, but um, it definitely would be interesting to see how this goes. So to continue on with the story. Well, well, wait a second. So how do we know? It would be great to understand this because how do we know? I'm going to play conspiracy theory. If I own the hotel chain, I'll be like, man, I really don't want to give out any points anymore. Let me just say somebody came in and hacked the system. I mean, how do we really know? So the problem is that it has circumvented the security methods that Hilton had employed for, you know, securing this. So to be honest with you, okay, I thought of that too, playing devil's advocate, but I don't think that that was the case in these in these um, particular thefts that occurred. Just because that we would see it more widespread – and it would clear multiple accounts, right? True. This true. is basically a, a hacker, you know, or a, a group of hackers in this case. Um, it, I mean, these are thieves. I'm not going to say hackers, right? They're thieves. So a group of thieves that came in and said, all right, this is our MO, this is what we're going to focus on, and this is how we're going to get the reward points and things like that. So Brothers says that he plans to dispute the credit card charges but he's um, unsure what will happen with uh, the points that were lost. Nearly a week after he complained to Hilton about the fraud, Brothers has yet to receive a response from the company. Hilton also did not respond uh, for request for comment from uh, Krebs. So put a pin in it, right? Uh, Hilton gives users two ways to log into accounts, with a username and password or a member number and four-digit pin. (laughs) What could go wrong here, right? Judging from the changes that Hilton made recently to his login process, thieves have been breaking into Hilton Honors accounts using the latter method. According to the travel loyalty website, loyaltylobby.com, 
Hilton recently added a CAPTCHA to its login process, ostensibly to make it more difficult for crooks to use brute force programs or botnets, right, to automate the guessing of the pins associated with the member accounts. Because if it's a four-digit pin, I think, well, let's say four-digit pin, right, there's how many? Start at triple triple zero one and go all the way up to yeah, 9999. Yeah, absolutely. So what's that, 10,000? Yeah. So... Um, Let's see, or 10,001 if you 10, consider 000. So, and who would use that, right? Security through obscurity. So, in a, in a post on October 30th, Loyalty Lobby's John uh, Olila, or Olila wrote about a hacker selling uh, Hilton Honors accounts for a tiny fraction of the real world value of points in these accounts. For example, the points stolen from brothers would have fetched around 12 U.S. dollars even though the thieves in this case managed to redeem the stolen miles for approximately $1,200 worth of hotel reservations. So wait a minute. Say that again? What does the math calculate on that? So for... So $12 is what they sold it for, right? That's how much it would have fetched. 1200 is a real-world value. That doesn't even seem worth stealing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. A few button clicks, and they made 12 bucks. <laughs> so Krebs did a little bit of sleuthing on his own and was able to find plenty of sellers on shady forums, offering them for about 3 to 5% of their actual value. There was an ad on a black market drug bazaar known as Evolution Markets that indicated that the points can be redeemed for gift cards, which is as good as cash, at points.com, and other locations that convert points to currency. The points can also be used to buy items from the Hilton shopping mall, including golf clubs, watches, Apple products, and other electronics. So, a merchant on the Evolution's black market hawking uh, hijacked Hilton points for a fraction of their value. Now, this is what they said on the site, on the a shady site. I don't recommend using them for personal hotel stays, but they are safer and cheaper than using a carded hotel surface. <laughs> So the carded hotel service being a fake credit card. So the seller also advises referring to the risks associated with using the points versus trying to book somewhere using the stolen credit card. Hilton Honors is hardly alone in allowing logins via account numbers and four-digit pins. United Airlines is another big-name company that lets customers log in to view, spend, transfer point balances with little more than a member number and a pin. These companies should offer their customers additional security options, such as the ability to secure the account with uh, multi-factor authentication like security keys or the Google's Authenticator mobile app. If it wasn't already painfully obvious that a lot of companies and their customers could benefit from adding the multi-factor, you know, it's now easier with the tools streamlining the process of dumping the available wards to a prepaid card. So... Um, stolen points and miles will be a great way to fund a criminally friendly travel agency. <laughs> <laughs> but by the way, that's such a thing. Check out, there's another story that we'll post on the show notes about services in the underground that will book stolen flights and hotel rooms for a fraction of their actual cost. That's what it uses on the back end of the stolen points. So with that said, there's a whole ecosystem based around these points. So this was convenience from a provider standpoint if i'm hilton if i'm southwest if i'm something right i'm able to have an incentive which is the points for you to you know gain the points and things like that and redeem them later on but now that's been turned on its head 
obviously it's being used for things other than that. So, you know, that's one of those things where something that had good intentions has now been turned. Not only that, but it can be used to fund nefarious things. Um, and a lot of individuals right now, when I say individuals, companies, um, are using the convenience portion of it, which is a four-digit PIN that you can set up, and your account number, which can be received on any confirmation, email, anything like that. So I don't even have to know username, pass at this stage. It's just a four-digit PIN, and you know you put it in and you go, what are your thoughts on this, guys? So it's a lot easier um, doing it that way because um, you can just find out a person's email address, and then you can just run a little script that'll go up from the triple zero one all the way to uh, 9999 and just keep it going and you'll eventually get in unless of course they have a captcha but even that can be worked around yeah machine learning yeah well maybe this is a a good lesson for all those hotels that don't uh, cash in the rewards points because every time I try to use them they don't ever seem to work (laughs) Yeah, so we definitely have to uh, keep our eye out on that. So let's segue into something else if you guys don't have any other comments on that. Nope. Vic? No, I don't uh, think I have anything else to say other than I better check my rewards, see how many points I got left in there. Yeah, I need to go in and check mine as well. So all you listeners, go in and check your rewards points. Yep. Okay, so um, now let's go ahead and look at uh, a new feature of Google. They're always doing cool stuff. So um, people who use Goom, uh, go- who <laughs> use Goom- Gmail, <laughs> who use Gmail, who use uh, Gmail and other Google services now have an extra layer of security available when logging into Google accounts. The company has now incorporated into the services uh, the universal second factor standard U2F, which is a physical USB-based second factor sign-in, something you have, a component that only works after verifying the login site is truly a Google site. It's a $17. Um, you can find it for about 17 bucks. Yubico makes one. So the U2F standard um, is a product of FIDO, which is the Fast Identity Online Alliance, which is an industry consortium that has been working to come up with specifications that support a range of robust authentication technologies, including biometric identifiers and USB security tokens. The approach announced by Google essentially offers a more secure way of using the company's two-step authentication method. And for several years, Google has offered an approach that is called a two-step verification, which sends a one-time pass to the user's mobile or landline phone. So you can pop, lock, and drop in your second-factor USB device, and then next thing you know, you're connected. You're all good to go. So... um, the two-step verification makes it so that even if thieves manage to steal your password, they can st- they need to access the mobile or landline phone they're trying to log in with your creds from a device that Google has not previously seen associated with your account. As Google notes in the support documentation, Security Key offers better protection against this kind of attack because it uses cryptography instead of verification codes and automatically works only with the websites it's supposed to work with. Unlike a one-time token approach, the security does not rely on mobile phones, so no batteries are needed. So in the case of Nick StarTech, we're good. (laughs) (laughs) But the downside is that... um, Nick, you upgraded? No, I still got it. 
So, StarTech or? No, you upgraded to the StarTech. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. The downside is that it doesn't work for uh, mobile-only users because it requires a USB port. Also, the security key does not work for work does not work for Google other than Chrome. So, like, if you have Gmail and things like that, it's you know, if you have a browser other than Chrome, it's not going to work. So the move comes a day after Apple launched Apple Pay, right, which is a wireless payment system that takes advantage of NFC and is built into the new iPhone 6, which for Nick is a huge step ahead. <laughs> so, you know, when he gets his hands on one, we'll be able to see what's going on. So that allows users to pay for stuff at participating merchants by merely tapping. We talked about some vulnerabilities and currency via Apple Pay last week, so um, be sure to check that out. So... Soon enough, government websites may also offer consumers more authentication options than many financial sites. An executive order announced last Friday by the White House requires that the National Security Council staff, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the Office of Management and Budget to submit a plan to ensure that all agencies making personal data accessible to citizens through digital applications implement multiple layers of identity assurance, including multi-factor authentication. Verizon Enterprise has a good post on the announcement, and um, we'll go ahead and put that up on the site. But I think it's very interesting. What do you guys think? We're transitioning now into what you know, what you have, and who you are, right? So you could really, the next step of that is if you use the fingerprint scanner, which uses the subdermal layers, which are on the iPhone 5S and up, now you can do a who you are, right? Are those on the iPhone 6? Yeah, they're on the iPhone 5S and up. Is there any way to fake it? Yes, so there was. Basically, um, since it is a subdermal layers, I believe they took um, they took a mapping of somebody's fingerprint ridges, and they put that on. I, I think they were able to fool it by a physical attack. But that requires sophisticated methods. I mean, I don't know how they did it, but you have to know how. You, it's not something that's intuitive just by not researching into it. And if somebody can mirror or mimic who you are, that means they would have had to have previously had interaction with you before. This protects against off-the-street attacks. So if somebody picks up your phone or goes to your computer and tries to access your account without the device, they will have a lot of issues. So right now we have what you know, which is your password, what you have, which is the token. Now we can implement a who you are. And it's a crypto token. Well, so. you know what? Nick is probably further advanced on the security thing than we are because – his phone actually has an antenna on it, and I know that in this day and age, nobody will steal a phone with an antenna Damn on it. Damn right. <laughs> so, There's no way to break into so my phone. So you'll see people in the parking lots right now taping on antennas to their phone. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, But that brings up a good point. So with GSM being widely used, CDMA and GSM being widely used in the StarTech back in the day, what did you use the phone for? Texting and phone calls. E- if you were able to text. If you were able to text. So let's take that out of the equation. <laughs> Phone calls and voicemails. Yep. Um, now, you know, wearables and bring your own device has become like a way of life for us. Um, I obviously couldn't leave the house without my cell phone. I have to constantly be updated. Um, I have to stay in tune with email. I have to stay in tune with the applications that I have installed. I mean, typically what you see in technology is we transition into something new, then we go back to old. So phones will get larger, and then you'll start seeing them get smaller. But I don't think the functionality will ever go away of a cell phone or a mobile device being integrated with your life. 
I think that it's always going to be something that we will use and lean upon in our daily lives. So security methods definitely have to be developed and thought of. So yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, that transition, right? So we transition with the StarTAC. Uh, what were some of the nuances you, well, Nick currently well, faces, Nick currently. but <laughs> we, we previously faced. Nick, Vic, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Nick, you use it all the time. I remember you told me your <laughs> hand was hurting because you used that one button to, you know, you had to hit an A for number one and then hit it three times to get the letter C. So there was no on Actually, screen. I can't text on it. You can't? You don't have a texting package? Mm -mm. <laughs> and that's, so that's actually the funny thing. What did texting start out as? You didn't get charged for texting before. No. Right. So, uh, cell phone or service providers now, it's, what is it, a 600%? 6,000% markup. And so it's a 6,000% markup because it uses a portion of the baseband that uses very little And it wasn't illegal to text and drive. Back in the day, yeah. Back in the day. So look, let's see what's changed. Because it was too hard to text. <laughs> changed is previously um, we texting wasn't charged, right, number one. Number two, we used phones for what? Making phone calls. At 35 cents, 50 cents a minute. Yeah, so not browsing the web, not emailing, not any of this. So the more it's become integrated into our lives, the more that we have not looked at security because cell phones were arguably, an and I say arguably, um, a secure protocol before. I mean, I understand you could do GSM spoofing and stuff like that, but man in the middle um, from a browser perspective, CSRF from a browser perspective, being able to install my malware or crimeware on cell phones. Yeah, that didn't exist. That didn't exist. So now we, you know, so it was more secure in the paradigm. Now we've gone to convenience, right? So it's more convenient and less secure. So that's something to definitely look out yeah, for. Yeah, and then, you know, they added the cameras, and you can add all the Oh, yeah, totally. There's so many things that you can do with a cell phone right now. It's, I mean, it, honestly, my iPhone 6 Plus, it's like a laptop. Yeah, it's a laptop. Yeah, I don't really, do you really need, I mean, do yes. you really need a laptop? Question, oh, no, I don't need a laptop, but... Um, I thought you asked, do I really need the iPhone 6 Plus? Hell yeah, I need the iPhone 6 Plus. Oh, I can't say hell yeah. Why not? All right. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> I won't say that again. Heck yes. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Vic, what do you have, a Droid? I have a Droid Razor Max. Are you going to be going over to the iPhone side? So it's funny you ask that because my wife and I keep going back and forth with the uh, iPhone 6, and then I think what's the Samsung Galaxy uh, S5? S5 and the Note, Note 4. Note, Note 4. 4. And yeah. So uh, I actually called into Verizon today, and uh, someone at Verizon, um, somebody mentioned, the the rep, meant, I asked her, I said, what's your personal favorite? And she said she was a, um, she was a Samsung fan. So uh, I don't know if they really can. They're going to steal your iris data. You think so? Absolutely. So the, the S5 looks at your eye movement, and... So, like, if you move your eyes down, it will page the page down for you. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but it's tracking your eye eye data. Really? Yeah. Does it also stay on when you put it down? Yeah, and I it, think so. And you could talk to it and say yeah. whatever you want to say? I think say. the battery life is really long on the, the Samsung <clears throat> phones as well. I think it, but mine's really long, too. I mean, really? mine <laughs> on the iPhone mine 6 too. Plus. Dude, your StarTech, he has the ex he has the extended battery pack on his, right? And it lasts and it, like seven weeks, right? Like he charges it, 
Hey, you okay, know he charges Just, it in his car, but it, the lights dim. <laughs> but you know, he gets it charged. I don't get malware. That's, that's true. That's right. That's, he, true. that's because he turns his phone off. What did, uh, what did Peter call. Bloom said? Uh, Peter Bloom say he said it was like a walled garden, the iOS side of the house and the Android side of the house. You know, the, I don't, I forget the metrics. Yeah, he said he he won't even touch one. A good number of the, he won't touch what? He won't an touch Android. an Android. Really? Yeah, because of the malware. So he's not a Samsung fan. Well, which I mean, I can see. I'm not. I'm not. To be honest with you, myself. I like some of the Samsung's other products, but I like the iPhone. So you know what? I think what it is with me and my wife is I'm so used to, you know, like I said before on previous podcasts, I, I'm more of a Windows person per se, I, just because I know it better than, than I do uh, using my Mac. And what it is, is he likes Notepad and WordPad. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Lotus Notes. <laughs> no, but uh, back XL but one, two, I'm just three. afraid if I get the iPhone. I don't know about you guys, Coral. but what Coral? Coral Notes. Corel Draw. Coral yeah, Draw. Corel, right? Corel. Um, yes, I'm just afraid if I change to the iPhone. There's that whole learning curve and having to like figure things out. You know, I'm just my Droid just seems easier for me just i just know how it works all right man when you do five questions with us we we already know which questions we're gonna ask you i think you already asked me did we <laughs> did we already interview vic we did didn't we oh you were the first one that's right that's funny all right maybe i should get one of each oh there oh. you go get my wife one and i'll get the then other then we can do malware development on because one I think of them. I or malware days we can like do malware analysis on one of them you know that's another thing too i mean um i don't know if you guys have looked into it these data packages uh these telephone uh, the mobile telephone carriers definitely saw that uh data usage was going to go up because they took away the unlimited data plan so yeah. me i'm forced to i want to keep my unlimited data plan so i'm going to go out and uh, just buy my phones that's outright. that's the that's the best thing to do but here's the thing once you get over a certain data point again i tell i say this all the time i'm an evangelist so i'm going to keep saying it right when you enter an agreement with a service provider, you have to know up front what the terms of the agreement are. So when Verizon had unlimited data, which you're a Verizon customer, mm -hmm. when Verizon or AT&T or Sprint or T-Mobile had unlimited data before because everybody was doing it, they didn't throttle you if you went over a certain amount. You had unfettered, this is what it is, you get unlimited data. Now if you go over a certain amount, they throttle you. AT&T uh, was in the news this past week about that. That, to me, if, all right, if I say something, I'm held to that, right? So if I say I'm going to show up tomorrow at 6 a.m. at this place, I'm going to show up tomorrow at 6 a.m. at this place. Not 6.30, not 7 o'clock, not 7.30. I entered an agreement with somebody, and I'm going to hold true to that agreement. Now service providers are not held to the same degree. They can kind of do what they want. So look out for that, but I definitely would buy the phone outright. Well, and then if you guys been monitoring, it seems like they've been giving more and more data packages. I think the latest I saw with Verizon is now they do a 10 gig shared. But um, me, I use my phone a lot. Um, I use it to get on the internet a lot of times. Yeah, you have you have that app. You don't have to name the app, but you yeah, have that app that you use that shares out your internet connection right. to local devices. But you know the iPhone uh, on AT and T at least can do that. It has a personal hotspot built in. Right. So, well, there's just um, so it's give things. and take. Give yeah, and take. but 
As far as like the the data, um, they're giving the 10 gigs, but I use mine a lot. I think I use myself between 10 and 16 gigs a month just because um, I'm at the doctor's office. I'll log on HBO Go and watch a watch a movie or movie something. Like that. Or oh, so some, most of it's streaming. Yeah, so, so it's, I stream it, a lot. And actually, the internet connection for even when I make it a hotspot, mm-hmm. it's fast. It's, it's fast. I, I, if I didn't have some of the things I do in my house, I probably wouldn't even need. I, I don't even think I ever hardly ever use the internet in my house. I, it's just for the the VoIP phones and all yeah, the, all the stuff you have set up there. Yeah. So, so definitely, you know, and it's kind of you know looking at what you have and basically choosing what's best for your your situation. So let's transition now into another story. This system will self-destruct. Crimeware gets more powerful with new functions. So researchers have discovered a new uh, new capabilities in black energy crimeware tool that significantly extends its reach. The ability to run on network devices, steal digital certs, and render infected computers unbootable are just few of the newfound weapons in the arsenal. Black energy emerged as a tool for launching uh, denial of service attacks. It later morphed into a crimeware used to funnel banking credentials, and most recently was observed as a refitted piece of software for espionage that targeted NATO. Right? Ukrainian and Polish government agencies and a variety of sensitive European industries over the last year. We reported on this, like, I think, episode four. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. But um, this is kind of a reiteration of that a little bit and giving you more in depth. In this last incarnation, black energy in some cases was installed by exploiting a previously known vulnerability in Microsoft Windows. According to a report published on Monday by Kaspersky, the breadth of black energy even goes further. A host of extensions customized for both Windows and Linux systems contain commands for carrying out DOS attacks, stealing passwords, scanning ports, logging IP sources, covertly taking screenshots, gaining persistent access to command and control channels, and destroying hard drives. Right? Researchers um, Kurt and Maria also acquired a version that works on ARM and MIPS-based systems and uncovered the evidence Black Energy has infected network devices manufactured by Cisco. So ARM and MIPS are in wearables and BYOD devices. ARM processors and things like that are very popular, as well as in embedded devices. So they're unsure precisely what the purpose is for some of the plugins, including one that gathers device instance IDs and other information on connected USB drives and other, and another that collects details on the BIOS motherboard processor of the infected systems. So the researcher said, we are sure that our list of black energy tools is not complete. For example, we have yet to attain the router access plugin, but we are confident that it exists. Evidence also supports the hypothesis that there is a decryption plugin for victim files. Black Energy has targeted uh, victims in at least 20 countries, including Russia, Germany, Belgium, Turkey, Libya, and Vietnam. And one unidentified victim was infected through a spear phishing campaign that exploited an unspecified vulnerability. Once the unknown attackers had reason to believe that the victim knew of the infection, they activated DSTR, which is the name of the plugin that destroys the hard drives by overriding them with random data. A second victim was compromised by using VPN credentials taken from the first victim. Monday's reports from Kaspersky Lab comes a week after the ICS Cyber uh, Emergency Response Team uh, warned of critical vulnerabilities in industrial systems that are being actively exploited by several advanced persistent threat groups, one such as NATO, and the advisory stated is the uh, Sandworm team uh, suspected of hacking NATO. So this is crazy. So from a CND um, DCO perspective, right, if something occurs on the network with this, um, 
I guess we'll call it crimeware, right? right. Um, black energy. So let's say black energy comes on and you notice some suspicious network traffic emanating from a certain portion of the network, you lock it down to the port and location of that device, you go and say, all right, I want to further investigate it, lock it off by the port. They can then say, if you lose network connectivity, then, so it's an if-then, then, then um, activate the hard drive. DSTR, <laughs> I believe was <laughs> the name spin. of it. Yeah, just, uh, it's ones and overwrites with ones and zeros. So by the time I get there, as the, you know, um, as the analyst or whatever the case is, and I pull it off of the network and I do my analysis on it, nothing is there. The forensics value then is completely nullified. And hopefully you've done a backup recently. Hopefully, through some type of through some type of software that you have installed on the network. You're taking some forensic backups of something on the network. But this is bad, and it's looking for ARMS and MIPS-based systems. So in some cases, you can look at an x86-64 right, system and say, all right, it's localized to one or the other. Now the paradigm shift is if it's x86-64 based, right, if it's an i7, i5, i3 processor, whatever the case is, and it's not affecting wearables or BYOD um, with ARMS or MIPS-based um, processors, we're good, right? Because then it's only affecting a certain portion of that, which is the computers, the laptops, something like that, and it's not affecting my embedded devices. Now it's affecting everything. So this specific piece of crimeware can affect the whole gamut of things within an enterprise environment. It can get BYOD, so all the all the devices that are disparate within the enterprise environment, your laptops, your desktops, your servers, um, as well as the, you know, the networking devices. Obviously, they said black energy has infected networking devices manufactured by Cisco. They didn't release anything further on that. I have to read the report. Um, I kind of got a little bit through it. I want to read some more of it, but that's very interesting to me because this is like a piece of crime where you could point at a particular enterprise environment and say, just go do your thing. And it'll get, um, because it's x86, it'll also get Apple's. Yes. Yes. It'll get nothing, nothing safe in its Windows, Linux base, which as we know, yeah, so that's Apple a little in the bit scary. So this is a very um, scary piece of crimeware. So Black Energy, keep a lookout for it. Um, and it would be even, like they said they had... Um, a chained attack, where in one victim they got creds for the VPN, then bricked that device, and then used the um, creds in another uh, device to get access to the VPN in that virtual private network. So it shows you they're using it for chained attacks and to cover their tracks. So do you all have anything else to say on that? Did it mention, are they doing this um, for ransomware, for money, or they're doing it just uh, to create havoc? I think it's for corporate espionage, to be honest with you. That's what it looks like, corporate espionage. Espionage. So, so they do want the data. I think they want the data. So um, it originally was for denial of service. It later morphed into crimeware used to funnel banking credentials and most recently was observed as a refitted piece of software for espionage that targeted NATO, Ukrainian and Polish government agencies, and other European industries over the last year. So they repurposed it. It's pretty interesting. So uh, that was a cool story. So let's go into another one that's pretty cool. So those Mac users out there that have just up, updated to Yosemite, or if Nick's saying it, Yosemite. <laughs> Thought I forgot. Paiuchi. Paiuchi. <laughs> so um, representing a potential privacy snare for some users, Mac OS X Yosemite uploads documents 
open in TextEdit Preview and Keynote to iCloud servers by default, even if the files are later closed without ever having been saved. So that means if you opened something, started typing something into there, copying and pasting credentials of your sysadmin, whatever the case is, it's uploading, which is a no-no by the way, is uploading itself and updating to iCloud without warning. Yeah. So the behavior, as noted in an article from Slate, is documented in a knowledge base article from December. But it nonetheless came as a surprise to researcher Jeffrey Paul, who said that he was alarmed to recently discover a cache of in-progress files he intended to serve as temporary post-it notes that had been silently uploaded to his iCloud account, even though he never intended or wished them to be. And uh, Paul says... Apple has taken local files on my computer, not stored in iCloud, and silently and without my permission uploaded them to their servers. Uh, once upon a time, in-progress files were stored locally on a Mac, a design that gave users more ability to prevent sensitive files, say those created on the fly to store passwords, social security number, or confidential client attorney work product, from being accessed via law enforcement or national security dragnets. Whereas locally stored files residing on a file vault protected Mac require the adversary to have physical access and possession of crypto key, the bar for accessing files stored in iCloud is lower. According to the formal National Security Administration, well, how did they work that? That's what um, NSA's uh, former favorite guy, Edward Snowden, which we all know that anything that guy says, taken with a grain of salt. Um, that's what he said um, as some advice. So that's what was posted on, um, where did I get this from? I think I got it from Ars Technica. But either way, again, taken with a grain of salt. The iCloud autosave provides a convenience that many users no doubt are happy to have. After all, the copies allow users to pick up right where they left off when switching Macs or turning uh, on an iPhone or iPad to resume work on an unfinished letter, presentation, or other type of document. But credits adjust but critics object to the behavior being turned on by default without a more explicit warning that it funnels potentially sensitive data to Apple servers. Um, they say, I think uh, the iCloud thing is a really nasty behavior, and it's apparently in Mavericks, too. So I'm surprised that it hasn't been mentioned in the tech press. That was Matt Green, a professor specializing in cryptography at JHU, told Ars Technica. He says, I'm sure someone will twig it soon, as in somebody will try to abuse it um, in form of uh, making it a vulnerability in an enterprise environment. It will become part of somebody's toolkit. As Paul noted, the autosave feature is turned on unless users take action to disable it. One way is to turn it off within the settings that can be accessed from System Preferences, iCloud, Documents and Data. Another way is to save a blank file and then type the notes afterwards. So pretty easy stuff. If I'm an attacker, what am I going to look at? I'm going to chain the iCloud events that occurred with you know, the pictures that were released. We, what, I think it was part of our first episode, first or second episode, when all the, the uh, celebs' pictures and stuff like that were leaked through their iCloud. Now, like we said before, the paradigm shift between convenience and security, it's more convenient to have my things saved somewhere automatically. But the problem is, as an attacker, now I only have to go to one place. You're putting all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, so uh, why do you think Apple... Uh Impl did that. Yeah, why did they implement that? I think that? Apple, Apple implemented it because it's part of their normalizing and standardizing their product line. So what I think they want to do is rival like a OneNote oh, okay. or a Google and say, you know, hey, let's go ahead and save it in one place. And, you know, 
this opens up the opportunity for things in the future. But the problem is it's very convenient. However, as a user, I would like to be um, I would like to be told that beforehand. So I've actually verified it on my Mac. I mean, it was an install of Mavericks, and it was enabled. So it's something to look out for. Can you disable it? Yeah, I did. I did like five minutes before the show. <laughs> and then I deleted everything out of my iCloud. That was to do with the notes and whatnot. So um, do you guys have anything else to say about it? Well, I don't think Vic's going to have a problem with it because he likes his um his Windows. Windows. But he uses a Mac. Yeah, that's pretty funny, isn't it? Only Listeners. guy I know that like uses Word for Mac. <laughs> Why don't you just get a Windows device? You know what? I thought of getting another laptop just to mess around. Uh, well, you know, I do a lot of work stuff on this, and it's still very mechanical for me. It's it's not like Windows. I could just fly through it. Open up a PowerShell. Maybe I just and you're good get to go. older, and I don't. I'm setting my ways. Why don't you just dual boot Windows on there? Oh no. So what I do is um, lots of VMware. I use VMware Fusion. So basically, you know, it has a VMDK that's resident on disk. Parallels is also another good application to use on the Mac, um, as well as VirtualBox. But I chose to use VMware Fusion just because of the, just for the ease of use. But, you know, you can use any of the, you know, other programs that are out there. And basically, if I have an application open in Fusion, I can then, like, let's say I have Word. Now I can port that over into my Mac environment completely seamlessly. It's a very good working product. So... There are ways around it um, from, you know, using wanting to use Windows application in a Mac setting. So there you go. There you go. Vic. Or I could just ride down to Walmart, drop my 199 on an Acer laptop. Boom. Call it a day. Be day. Back, back at home, zipping and zagging on my laptop and be a uh, product as you know what. And getting all that malware. But the problem is. <laughs> For free. Yeah, right. For free. <laughs> But the problem is, once you do that and you go to process something, I, I don't know, you know, what you're processing. Word maybe, document? No, I mean, more graphics intensive, you know, like opening three or four Word documents in a row or uh, doing something in the browser, it's going to, your processor is going to be going, <gasps> it's not going to have enough horsepower. Horsepower? We want to talk about horsepower. Nick, we're trying to record right now and you have like a single core processor in this thing i'm recording on the star tag he's actually no he's recording on his univac 480 he didn't tune the vacuum tubes yeah so, i don't understand it stops like every two minutes you think as an information security professional i think we need to buy an acer. acer walmart 199 i guarantee we'll get more than two minutes of record time on that sucker yeah pro tools will run on an acer <laughs> you can't use the acer for pro tools but we can chain them together and we could like do uh you have dual dual screens dual Core. All right. So um, let's uh, go to our next story. Let's do it. Uh, let's do it. All right. Drupal. Drupal, WordPress, content management. Awesome. Right? So Drupal sites had hours to patch before their attacks had started. Nearly a million websites running um, the popular Drupal content management system had only hours to update their software before attacks likely compromised the systems thanks to a widespread vulnerability. The Drupal security team warned them, warned everybody of the users of the software this week. On October 15th, the security team for the Drupal content management system announced the discovery of a critical security flaw that could allow attackers to steal data or compromise vulnerable websites. 
Within seven hours of the announcement, the attackers have begun broadly scanning and attacking Drupal sites, according to the project security team, which provided details on an October 29th public service announcement. So, let's see. If you do not update, or if you did not update your site within seven hours of the bug being announced, we will consider it likely that your site was already compromised. That's what Drupal said on their website. Content management systems have become increasingly popular target for attacks, blah, blah, blah. So let's see. Unfortunately for the sites affected, recovering from the breach is not easy. Website administrators will first have to take the site down, recover from a backup from a date prior to October 15th, and completely clean the server software, reinstall and patch Drupal, then restore the software. About 38% of websites of the top 10 um, content management systems the most popular WordPress is used by 61%, Joomla by 8%, and Drupal by 5%. So Drupal 7, the latest major release of the content management system, is nearly used or used by nearly a, webs- a million websites. So details on this vulnerability in Drupal 7.x could be exploited to gain elevated privileges or escalate privileges or execute PHP code through SQL injection attacks. Earlier versions of Drupal were not affected by the flaw, which ironically stems from the code designed to get, <laughs> designed to guard against SQL injection attacks. So they created code to protect against SQL injection, but that allowed SQL injection. <laughs> So the CVE 2014-3704 flaw creates a means for hackers to steal information or much worse, plant malicious code or backdoors on servers running vulnerable enterprise apps. Upgrading the Drupal 732 fixes the vulnerability without removing any backdoors installed by the hackers that they managed to compromise a site before it was patched. In some cases, it seems the hackers actually patched the vulnerable systems themselves, not as an act of charity, but to prevent rival hacking groups from getting in. That's crazy. That's typically what you see on an attack that happens on a network. They come in and you know, you'll know you have your wussus, you'll have your yum set up, and typically you push out updates in a normalized fashion. So the system administrator will go on, they'll have like you know patch Tuesday, the patch will come in, they'll pick one or two systems to update, and the next thing you know, they do the whole enterprise environment on that Friday. But when attackers come in, just like with these Drupal attacks, they typically try to beef up the defenses on the site or on the system that they're using so that it prevents others from getting in. Hold on, Matt. I think we need to do some research on rival hacker groups. That sounds pretty cool. It's like, yeah, pretty crazy. It's like the Thunderdome. (laughs) That's like the bloods and the crypts of hacking, right? (laughs) It definitely could be. Um, Oh, this is my server. No, it's my server. No, it's my server. You're throwing the wrong colors. You're in the wrong territory, man. You're wearing purple. You know, you throwing the wrong exploit here. You're throwing the wrong exploits on these on these parts, right? Don't make me get TCP wrapper. No, uh, don't make me hit a buffer overflow on you. <laughs> All right, so finding out uh, if there's a backdoor on a website is difficult and, and uncertain. So rather than simply patching, more drastic action is needed. So you need to back up your site, or hopefully you were backing it up and you built that in, and you can back it up from a previous uh, backup, and then you know have a quote-unquote known good copy of the website before October 15th, then patch it. Um, So in a nutshell, if the site was not protected within a few hours of Drupal's announcement on 15 October, you need to restore it from an old backup, rebuild it from the ground up. And, uh, you know, it's a hard pill for some to follow, or to swallow, sorry, and hard directions for some to follow, but, you know, this should have been built into your BCP DRP anyways. So they didn't do any uh, penetration testing on these back doors? 
I'm going to let you slide with that one. But I typically don't like people asking hard questions like that. However, the back door should be penetration tested as part of your continuous monitoring plan. So that is definitely something you have to watch out for in an enterprise environment. If you discover the back doors, you know, it may be pretty hard for you to get rid of those things in the enterprise environment, but it has to be, that's a high risk um, because the vulnerability is there. Um, with allowing the attackers to get into the environment or into the website for them to plant malware or some malicious content and have that propagate out to users, um, you know, coming to the website. So it's definitely something to look out for. So very good point, Vic. Very Thank good you. Point. So make sure you harden your system so you don't have any back doors. Yeah. So hardening is, is at, the top of the, at the top of the list. So, uh, and I actually think that's in the SANS Top 20. Hardening software and hardware and hardware devices in the enterprise environment, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Saying it's top 20? Yep. Best practices. Best practices. Top uh, DSD top 35 as well. So check those out for some tips. All right. So um, the next story we're going to get into is Verizon Wireless. So Verizon Wireless injects identifiers that link, uh, link its users to web requests, right? So this is typically something that happens. Um, we see it happen all the time in a user agent string. It can tell about your online identity through your browser. So it has things such as what the browser is, whether it's Mozilla, whether it's uh, Internet Explorer, whether it's Chrome, um, a lot of other details. It's all in, it's, that's typically what procedure, get, put, you know, those types of requests that go through the web browser. So they actually had a entire track on this uh, at B-Size DC, so be sure to check that out. I think we're going to be posting up the video from that event soon, so um, we'll be able to provide some coverage on what happened there. So uh, Verizon Wireless is adding cookie-like tokens to web requests traveling over its cellular network. These tokens are being used to build a detailed pictures of users' interest and help clients tailor advertisements according to researchers at Verizon's own and Verizon's own documentation. The profiling, part of Verizon's Precision Marketing Insights Division, kicked off more than two years ago and expanded to cover all Verizon wireless subscribers as part of the company's relevant mobile advertising service. It appends a per-user device token known as a unique identifier header, or a UIDH, to each web request sent through its own uh, cellular network from a particular mobile device, allowing um, Verizon to link a website visitor to its own internal profiles. The service aims to allow client websites to target advertising at specific segments um, of the consumer market. While the company started piloting the service two years ago, privacy experts only began warning of the issue this week, arguing that the service is essentially tracking users and that companies paid for uh, a fundamental service that should not be using the data for secondary purposes. So um, basically, the service allows the websites to request advertisements along with the UIDH from a participating on-demand advertising network. The network then can request market segment and geolocation information from Verizon to deliver the most appropriate advertisement. For its part, Verizon claimed that it keeps its users anonymous. Verizon's Precision Marketing Insights changes the UIDH after a set period of time, reportedly every week, and does not provide any of its internal profile information back to its third-party clients. The company said in an email um, they interviewed with Ars Technica. So they said, we do not use the UIDH to create customer profiles. Verizon Wireless does not use the UIDH to track where customers go on the web, and information about the web browsing is not part of the relevant mobile advertising program. That makes no sense to me. 
So when does the user get the ad? So basically, the mere existence of the database worries privacy advocates. Um, when the request actually happens is when you're browsing on the web with that UIDH flipped, and it sees where you're at from geolocation and where you're going to. If I believe the way it's set up, if they are um, opting in to the, um, to the service, which is the mobile advertising program that um, Verizon has the outreach and all that stuff set up through the Verizon Precision Market Insights, then um, once you opt in, you'll be able to get that relevant data yeah, from I'm the user. Yeah, I'm not opted in, so. Yeah. Well, no, you are opted in. Oh. Are you a Verizon Wireless subscriber? I am. Do you use the internet? Yes. Okay, so um, if you use Verizon's network and you're using their internet outside of the house on their network, then you are opted in. So, but we all know, uh, does this StarTech even get internet (laughs) service? I thought we talked about this a little earlier. You know, the other day I was ragging on um, Nick about his phone and he was like, you know what? You know what? Monochrome's coming back. (laughs) Oh, snap. That's too funny. When, uh... When he sends a text message to me, all I hear is... <laughs> sounds like I'm at the MBA. You know, and they're printing off, like, my new registration. Matrix? Yeah, it's a dot matrix. That's what it is. Yeah, one day he told me he was going to send me a text message, and I heard a fax machine going off. I think it's the same one that's on our intro. Yeah, that's what it was. Hey, I get 80 characters per second, so watch out. On his 2400 baud. Yeah, 2400 baud. We need to get this guy some AOL discs. That's what needs to happen. All right, so um, basically sending a UID, which is the universal identifier, in the clear to all sites will let any site denominize you. So all that's needed is for one site that has your email address or name to match that to the identifier, and then they can sell this to anyone. Verizon responded that while the UIDH is still in the, in the queries, consumers who have opted out of the program will no longer have information associated with the identifier. The company did not, however, pledge to stop updating user profiles. Verizon is not the only internet service provider to test new ways to generate revenue. Last month, Comcast was caught injecting JavaScript ads into the browsers of devices connected to any of its 3.5 million Wi-Fi hotspots. Comcastic. So, you know, it's one of those things that you have to look like uh, or look for when you're on these networks, when you're using a service provider's network. You have to know what you look like coming out of that request. Um... So, you know, something to keep in mind. So be sure to opt out of UIDH if you are a Verizon subscriber. So uh, with that, are we near almost time we're done here? We are. We're okay. going to take a break. And yeah, come we're going to take a break and come back and finish, finish the, out show. the show. I want to shout out all of our listeners. Thank you so much for uh, listening in. Be sure to spread the word. InfoSec Sync, uh, you know, we also have our Facebook, Twitter, and we're also on iTunes. So please, through any one of those means, subscribe and uh, stay up to date with what we have to say and the podcast and the professional development we're putting out. Um, again, we kind of hinted to it last time. It's still in the works. Um, we're looking at some companies locally. Hopefully, you know, we'll be able to do some type of uh, professional development course a new thing I, I don't really feel 100% comfortable saying it at this stage however um, let's just say a lot of our listeners will probably benefit from it it'll definitely enrich uh, security professionals here in the area and again feedback at infosexlink.com if you have anything to say you want to shout out something like that please hit us up on the email um, do you guys have anything anything else 
No, I think I'm good here, Matt. It was a good show. I'm pretty happy with the topics we covered today. Absolutely. Nick, you got anything? No. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right, guys, till next time, stay cool and stay in tune with InfoSec Sync. See ya. we're out.